ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Jay Shri Kulkarni's family moved from India to Australia in 1961. Back then, there were no spices nor plain yogurt to be found in the shops of Melbourne, and there were not many opportunities for Jayshree's mum to share her knowledge of ancient Sanskrit or classical Indian singing, though she did do her best to teach her neighbours how to cook Indian food. Little Jayshree loved to study, and to her parents' delight, she went on to medical school. Early on in Jayshree's training as a psychiatrist, she became fascinated by hormones, particularly the relationship between hormones and mental health in women, which was not something many of her medical colleagues had thought about at all. Jayshree's groundbreaking work on the role of hormones and mental health has challenged her profession and led to new treatments which are helping women all over the world. Hi, Jayshree. Hello. Tell me about the the ward of women patients that you worked with at the Royal Park Psychiatric Hospital back when you were just starting out as a psychiatrist. Yes, it was a long time ago and a different era completely when there were the very big mental health institutions, which of course deinstitutionalised in the 1990s, but this preceded that. And I was taken by the plight of the women in the what was called the chronic uh, women's ward. So some of the women had been inpatients of this ward for decades and um, really it was a very Dickensian old building, you know, it was quite horrible in that way. But what really struck me was the comments that were made again and again by uh, many of the women there who said things like, it's my hormones, doc. They'd actually and say that to you. They'd say that. They'd say things like, oh, I was fine till I had my baby and then things went, you know, haywire. And that, that phrase, it's my hormones, doc, really stuck with me. And I thought there really is something that's been overlooked here mm. and that is the influence of gonadal hormones, particularly estrogen, progesterone, testosterone in the brain and that we were missing a potential huge opportunity to develop new treatments that might be very effective, as well as I was quite appalled at the uh, the situation that these women could be in hospital for so long and also that their conditions were pretty awful in terms of the building. You know, those early effects really did have an impact because I thought we, we've got to do better. We just have to do better. So that stayed with me. Later on, I revisited the same um, hospital, the same ward, and this time I was actually working as part-time as a research fellow for the Mental Health Research Institute, which was based on the grounds of that hospital. And I, uh, I convinced the uh, senior consultants at that time to uh, enable me to do an oestrogen treatment trial. And I was really, really excited by what I saw. Well, what did you see? Well, it was, a, it was a very small number that we started working on in that group. And then later I moved to Dandenong Hospital, which is um, in further out in, in Melbourne, and then continued that trial. But in both hospitals, I noted that, in fact, we had some patients, some women patients, who just made a spectacular turnaround in that their auditory hallucinations, which is hearing voices when they're not there, um, disappeared. And these are people who had had these symptoms for a very long time, particularly the women where the voices had started after child delivery or baby delivery, so the postnatal psychosis. And uh, it wasn't just that group, though. It was other other women as well, uh, where there was just either a cessation of the auditory hallucinations completely, which was dramatic, or, in fact, a decrease in the volume and frequency and just made life so much better for those women. And that was in response to you giving oestrogen, giving that hormone yes. to patients. Yes. So did that allow women to be discharged, uh, to leave that, that psychiatric ward? Yes, there was one particular patient who I'll never forget, and that was actually at Dandenong, and she made such a dramatic turnaround from her auditory hallucinations that she had been an inpatient for a very long time, and she actually managed to be discharged um, after 
uh, I think it was 12 years. So that was a long stay ward as well. And she really, um, you know, went from a very incapacitating disease of schizophrenia to actually being able to live in the community independently. Mind you, you know, she'd lost a lot because during the time that she'd had the illness, unfortunately, um, her marriage failed and her husband took the child. So she was pretty much alone. But, you know, she then started to rebuild her life. Gosh, that must have really put the fire under you as a, as a doctor, as, a, as someone who wants to heal and help. Absolutely. So it just fueled this passion to say, we can do better if we think differently. And if we also listen to the voice of the person with the lived experience. So just trying to understand as a, as a non-medical person what's happening in the body and why uh, the introduction of a hormone might have such a big impact on, on someone's life in the way you just described, Jaytree, was the, the clue around the fact that it's these illnesses or, or psychosis had come on at a time of hormonal change. Was that part of what was a, a clue to you as a clinician? That was the obvious clue in some women, but some women uh, just, you know, didn't have that dramatic, uh, absolute onset and terrible psychotic illness that came on after giving birth. There were some women who actually described the illness as a more slow progression, but that at times they noticed that they were really, really unwell. And those times coincided with the menstrual cycle, low estrogen phase. So from both pointers, and then we had the other group who was the menopause group, who as they entered menopause, and some of those women had been perfectly well beforehand, suddenly deteriorated in their mental health with both a smaller number who had psychosis, but a bigger number who we're working with now who have depression during mm. this, this phase. So you see all three of those clinical observations and experiences related by the women themselves really point to there is something in this, in that oestrogen seems to be protective for the brain. How do you explain to non-medical people like me what hormones are and what they do in the body? Why do they matter so much? Hormones are very vital. They are uh, molecules that are messengers and they uh, regulate a lot of the body functions. But what we're very commonly used to thinking about is oestrogen, progesterone and in men, testosterone as being the sex hormones. So oestrogen and progesterone really are uh, very much seen as the hormones that regulate the functions of ovulation, so the egg being released from the uh, ovum, and that allows fertilisation by sperm, and then progesterone helps with implantation in the uterus, all about having a baby. But these particular molecules are very uh, powerful steroids and really having a large number of effects in the brain as messengers molecular messengers or chemical messengers in the brain. They, in fact, control chemicals such as serotonin, dopamine, acetylcholine and other brain chemicals, which actually are the ones that determine our behaviour, our memory, our thinking, uh, a whole range of things that can go astray when somebody's experiencing a significant mm. mental illness. So, you see, it's kind of like you've got hormones interacting with chemicals, but the hormones also interact with brain circuits. Mm. And, you know, the releasing hormones are in the pituitary gland in the brain and the hypothalamus, which is in the deep brain. So, you know, the brain is, a, as we know, the big controller of everything that we do, including all the hormone messengers and the hormone levels that are controlled at, at central headquarters, if you like, of the body. How do you see or understand the, the degree to which hormones affect the way we feel emotionally? How much can we attribute in our mood to what our hormones are doing? Well, you're talking to someone who spent her, her life doing this research, so I'm pretty passionate about the hormones. But of course, of course, they are in conjunction with a whole range of other impacts. So, for example, we have environmental factors. It's about, you know, what, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are you experiencing in life? Uh, they, that tr triggers various um, 
other chemicals and circuits. But, you know, like I, I still think that in all of that, the hormones are very potent in controlling our behaviour and our uh, actions in ways that we still haven't discovered. But it's a combined system of the hormones, the chemistry, which is the things that we talked about, serotonin and so on, as well as brain circuits, which is just like hardwiring of the uh, computer systems. So we have that going on as well. And it's all in flux because there's lots of impulses and messages coming from the outside world, the inside world of the body. What an impossible thing to study, Jayshree. I mean, really, <laughs> you should be focusing on peas or beans or something. <laughs> so is there any way to tell, either as the person experiencing the emotion or as the clinician, what's being caused by a hormone and what's being caused, say, in reaction to some environmental reality? No, it's very difficult to tease this all apart unless you get clear signals. So, for example, and we'll call her Mary, the patient who described, you know, perfectly ordinary, happy life, and then she has a baby and everything went astray. So, you know, that's a very dramatic pointer that in that big hormonal tumult that happens with childbirth, that that was the trigger for her mental illness. But we are coming around with more more neuroscientific discovery information that helps us clinicians because you, you can see that there are some women who are very vulnerable to even the mild shifts that go on in a monthly basis, whereas other women, you know, withstand huge changes in their hormone world. Say, for example, someone who's undergoing IVF, there are massive uh, hormone shifts in terms of injections and additional supplements just to make it possible for her to carry the, the baby. And yet a lot of those women don't experience massive mental health issues. Mm. So, you know, everybody's different. Everybody's an individual. But we do know that some women are very vulnerable to the hormone world. As you described it, it was listening to patients themselves reflect on their experience and, and their suffering, I guess, that, ma that made you be alert to this uh, factor of hormones. Why hadn't psychiatrists already twigged to that, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, look, I, I applaud the rise of the consumer voice and we see that in all of medicine, but particularly in mental health. I think mental health has done one thing that's really taken a step forward, which is to uh, have the person with the lived experience speak up about what's going on. There is a bit more of that also in a lot of medicine, but back in the, you know, the, the ages when I was a medical student and then early in the junior doctor years, um, it was very much a, a patriarchy. It was very much a hierarchical system where the doctor had the knowledge and the patient was, uh, you know, meant to have no knowledge and was to do what they were told. Mm -hmm. That's probably why a lot of detail about the story was not actually given the credence that it should have been. Researchers are also a different kettle of fish. I mean, our job is to be curious and to be that annoying three-year-old that just goes, but why? <laughs> but why? You know, so we are given the licence to do that. In fact, we need to do that. And so sitting and listening, if you've got time, as a researcher is exactly how you'll come up with the next round of ideas and, and taking an idea from what you've heard a person with lived experience say and then marry that with what you've read in a, a, you know, an article about uh, rat brain biology um, and then come up with what can happen from there. But I do think that the era of very patriarchal, hierarchical medicine has really changed a lot. Sure, there are changes that still need to occur, but I think we're moving in the right direction. Was it also reflecting the way that the male body was taken as the, the norm, the standard, and so it might be Absolutely. a different... Tell me more about that. Well, I can even remember the lectures when I was a medical student that, you know, the archetypal patient is a 70-kilogram white Caucasian male, and, and that's what, you know, a lot of the drug trials, for example, and in my field in psychiatry, a lot of drug trials of new medications, new antidepressants, new antipsychotics were predominantly trialled in male, white patients because 
the populations were drawn from the Veterans Affairs Hospital in the US, which meant, you know, when you've got a dose that's been trialled in a 70, 75 kilogram white male, and then you try and give that same dose to a 43 kilogram Asian woman, it's not surprising that there are different impacts and often bad side effects. Mm. So, you know, that's common sense. But, you know, the common sense doesn't necessarily translate into how clinical practice is actually occurring. Mm. And even just the whole issue that I'm imagining that for most Caucasian males of 75 kilos, their estrogen levels don't really have much of an effect <laughs> on their mood. So that, that must have just been a whole blind spot for, for researchers to a degree. Well, I mean, when I first started talking about the fact that we should do an estrogen trial in schizophrenia, I think people looked at me as if, you know, what planet are you on? Because there was this concept that estrogen is all about having babies. It was almost like there's this stainless steel belt at the waist (laughs) and nothing that happens below the waist has any impact on the brain or things above the waist. It was really weird. So, you know, the concept that estrogen, hang on, it is a neurosteroid, neurobrain steroid, as well as the hormone for reproduction was the first starting point. And we still got a lot of problem getting that message across because there's still this tendency that medicine is practised in silos. By that I mean gynaecologists will focus on the uterus, the ovaries, the tubes. That's about it. You know, they're not going to think about the brain as a natural. I mean, of course, you know, this is the old school gynaecology. The newer modern gynaecologists are very interested in the whole person. But this is how medicine was practised. And so you divide the person into bits. So you're not going to think about what is going on in the whole woman here. So woman first, getting away from the 70 kilogram white Caucasian male, and then second, trying to have an integrated view of the holistic person who's also got all these environmental factors and psychological defence mechanisms and how does she cope with stress married with what's going on in a biological sense. Mm. I wonder though, Jay Shree, I mean, you're a woman, you've probably heard uh, the kind of sexist comments of, oh, look, she's just hormonal, it's a period, don't pay attention. So was there a bit of you that was a bit cautious of saying, actually, these hormones matter a hell of a lot in in a woman? It it kind of runs slightly counter to uh, the desire to see ourselves as as free from our bodies to a degree. How How do you sit with those conflicting I'm impulses. Still, I'm still trying to juggle it because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like in this field, I almost get hit by the left-wing <laughs> diehard feminist group of, I mean, I am a feminist, of course, and uh, so my feminist colleagues will say, would you stop talking about, <laughs> you know, hormones and making out that women are at the women mercy of their hormones? Because if we do that, we're not going to have female leaders because everyone will just go, oh, you know, she can't handle things when the hormones go astray. And There was a lot of that in the 70s and 80s. Then I also get hit by the right-wing conservative group because they're saying, what's the hormones got to do with mental health? You know, that you can't be thinking about that because, you know, get back and swim in your own lane. You're a psychiatrist. You shouldn't be dabbling in things like hormones. And, you know, so there's that conservative view as well. However, here's my my kind of, uh, let's see if we can do this. We cannot afford for women to be out of the workforce because of depression. We cannot afford for women to be uh, not functioning at their best in terms of parenting, in terms of relationships, and most of all, the women deserve a good quality of life. Mm. So we need to then be able to provide treatments that actually help with depression, psychosis, whatever the mental ill health condition that's holding her back. So let's take the feminist argument and turn it around to say, gosh, aren't we lucky that there are hormone strategies and treatments that we can offer women to actually enable them to be whatever they want to be, which is what the feminist argument is, you know, to empower women to be whatever they want to be. So we can try and work towards that because that's what women want. 
Tell me more about some of the cases you've encountered where you've seen how hormones can play out in a woman's mental health. Say with trauma, how have you observed the way that that trauma and experiencing trauma can impact the way a, a woman's hormones work right from when she's very young? So this is another area of work that I've, my group and I've been working on now for some years. The impact of early life trauma, and let's include in that the biggest, broadest definition of trauma, which is emotional invalidation, emotional neglect, emotional abuse, physical punishment, physical abuse, and of course, sexual abuse. So that's my definition of trauma is very broad. Now, when a young girl experiences this, it has a profound effect on her mental health because it can change the brain biology. So what we find is when we go back and ask the stories of women about what was happening to them when they were young, we often find that there's a correlation between the woman who's got hormonally induced cyclical depression menopausal depression big time and even postnatal depression, it, you know, that, that sort of vulnerability to hormone fluctuations seems to be more in the women who've had early life trauma mm-hmm. of any of that sort. And why is because trauma in girls in particular are more vulnerable to the environment compared to little boys, although that can happen in boys as well. But the trauma sets off this rise in cortisol, which is the stress hormone that the adrenal glands make in response, again, to the controller in the brain of the other hormones. But that that is a stress hormone, cortisol. And that goes up and down with stress and it has massive numbers of effects in the body. But in these kids, these girl children who are very um, much on eggshells. They're walking on eggshells because they don't want to upset. They don't want to bring down the fury of one or other of the parents or they're fearful that the parents will leave and abandon them. And, and you know, that eggshell child walking gently, that's very stressful. And you can almost have this picture of this girl kind of, you know, just looking around and being hyper alert and, and just uh, always trying to not upset people. That's expressed in a hormone way, you know, as we talked about, that your behaviour and thinking and concentration, memory and all of that is also under the governance of hormones. Well, this is another one. This is not gonadal hormone, but this is cortisol. And so when you get a dysregulation or a not usual pattern of cortisol up and down, there can be downstream effects. And the adrenal hormones talk to the gonadal hormones and can cause this disruption So that's where we think that uh, early life trauma might actually impact on the later premenstrual depression or postnatal or menopausal depression. So it's something that's very much happening within the body. It's not just a memory or it's not only a memory or associations. It's something physiological that's going on. Everything is always a combination. So, you know, when you think you can you can give yourself a massive physiological, you know, rise in blood pressure and pulse by just thinking that you're driving along a country road and all of a sudden a child on a bicycle jumps out in front of your car. Now, even though you're not in a car, there's no kid, there's no bicycle, your blood pressure and pulse will go up. So there's a physiological response to a visualisation or a memory or a thought. So we're constantly doing that and our bodies are programmed to deal with intermittent stress. But these are people who in childhood had chronic stress. Stress is a bit of a floofy word, Mm. but, you know, we're talking about biological, psychological and social interactive maladaptive event. So, you know, something bad is happening and the body keeps remembering it. And the body will react and, and, and we see it. You know, people who've had early life trauma are a bit more likely to be jumpy and anxious and, you know, they're the people who have problems concentrating in school on boring geography or whatever they don't like because they're on high alert and their bodies and hormones are on high alert. And for females, it could come to the fore at times of other hormonal disruption like pregnancy or menstruation or menopause. So can anything be done to help 
you know, someone who's had that kind of experience of their hormones reset through early childhood? Yes, there are lots. And in terms of the the brain is also malleable in the sense of, you know, it's experiences that are positive will also help to undo some of the negative emotions and ex- and physiological consequences. So the girl who might have a difficult, stressful home life because of whatever trauma is going on there might also have a really nice teacher or have a sports coach who's very positive or have other positive experiences that will help. There are also things that happen in terms of hormonal flips and switches. So along with having more positive experiences can be things like resetting the thermostat, if you like, hormonally with things like the pill or even a pregnancy itself can reset the thermostat. I mean, there's all sorts of things that can happen. And also the brain can heal uh, over time, provided there isn't continuing ongoing um, nasty things that are going on that there is a healing that can also take place. So it's not all gloom and doom because I think that we've got to make sure that, you know, people's positivity and their capacity to pull themselves out of difficult circumstances, you can't underestimate that. And so it's not all predestined and, you know, predetermined. Yes, the hormones may not be working for you, but there are things that you can do to actually help. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. You've mentioned uh, menopause a few times, Jayshree, is another yes. one of those times where hormones are going all over the place. What, a, what was the attitude towards menopause and mental health when you first started out in psychiatry? It was like menopause? No, what do you mean? There's nothing to do with menopause. Is it a thing? I mean, you know, it was very uh, absolute and still is. What has menopause got to do with anything? And so you find that there's this kind of mind-body split Uh, I think we've also had the taboo about menopause. Shush, don't talk about that. You know, that's just something that women go through. They pull up their socks, they get on with it, stop whinging, all of that stuff. But then the absolute mind-body split. So very few times will people remember in mental health practitioners and so on, remember to ask the middle-aged woman about what's going on in the menopausal process. And in fact, you know, this is another big area of research that I'm very passionate about because we do know that there is a massive increase in the depression in a number of women with menopause changes that are going on. And menopause is a 10-year transitional process. It's not just a one thing. Why is there that link between depression and menopause for some women? Because the role that oestrogen has in the brain is that it is protective. It's called a neuroprotective hormone in that it's a lovely hormone for for memory, for concentration, for mood stability. And in fact, progesterone is, is a lovely hormone for anxiety control. And so when these hormones dip and they don't just sort of go along stable and then suddenly drop, they actually have this kind of sawtooth pattern of declining but then going up and then going down and then eventually going, you know, down to to pre-pubertal levels. But in this process, um, the, the protective factors when these levels of oestrogen and progesterone are higher is lost because that's what's going on in menopause. So it's two things. It's the fluctuations, which the brain doesn't like. The brain likes hormones to be steady state, as well as the actual decline in brain oestrogen and brain progesterone levels. Poor us, I think, when I hear that. (laughs) That sounds really hard. (laughs) No, but you see, the thing is, it doesn't affect everybody in the same way. So this is the other point that we keep making is we're not trying to medicalise menopause and go, oh, you know, everybody, every woman is doomed. But what we're trying to say is, look, there are some women who really, really struggle and suffer. And for them, 
the treatments are there. You know, there are hormone therapies. It used to be called HRT, is now called MHT, menopause hormone therapy. They are there. They're available. It's just that it seems odd to be treating a depression in a woman with a hormone when the natural tendency is to go for an antidepressant. But the antidepressants can have a little bit of improvement but not total improvement Mm. in this special depression, which one of my patients said, well, that's bleeding obvious, isn't it? (laughs) Yep, it It it, is bleeding obvious. It it could be. I remember I had Professor Ian Hickey on the program last year talking about depression and he was making that point that it's such a nuanced condition and without identifying the right cause, really you can get the treatment wrong. So if a woman comes and sees a doctor or psychiatrist with depressive symptoms, I guess it is really important to understand if hormones are playing a role and it sounds like they really could be. I agree with um, the comments that you made that Ian Hickey had said and this is where I would say, why don't you just ask the woman? Because, you know, (laughs) nine times out of ten, the woman who's 50 or 48 to 50 is when she's experiencing the uh, significant downturn in mental health, so with the depression, she'll tell you. Uh, just like my patients with psychosis said, it's my hormones, doc. I, I get so many times the woman who goes, I know this is my hormones. I know me. You know, you don't get to 50 without knowing quite a, quite a bit about yourself. And especially if the woman's already had, you know, lots of premenstrual depression, she knows what that feels like. If she's had a baby, she knows about all of that. And so... I come back to it. We just need to listen to what she's saying and then follow her journey and assist her journey, provide her with the safety about what what is out there and what's not safe and what is safe. But, you know, I think this is, again, the business about the lived experience voice that, that we can actually improve outcomes by listening to the woman. And how quickly have you seen hormone therapy Help shift a woman's depression and menopause. It's one of the most exciting things that I have experienced along also with when, you know, I was doing the trial and the women's voice who were hearing voices that were not there disappeared. This is the other really exciting thing. I, I, again, in my clinic, I I remember there was this woman we saw, the endocrinologist who was working with me in the clinic and and myself, we, we used to see people together and a lady who was 47 couldn't really walk up the corridor from the waiting room to my uh, consulting room. She was, you know, had uh, hip pain, knee pain. She was really, you know, struggling with pain to walk up the corridor, as shoulder pain, and she was crying. And, you know, all of this depression had been going on for about 14 months. Uh, she'd been working as a CEO of her own business, but then you know, the business was failing because she was not able to concentrate. She couldn't remember things. She was angry and irritable. And so some of her staff had had resigned. It was just a mess. Mm. And, uh, and she was miserable. She was really miserable. And she had no past history of, of mental illness. So we decided that we would offer her MHT, menopause hormone therapy, and we gave her an estrogen patch and some oral prometrium, which is a form of progesterone. And then we said, come back and see us next week. And, you know, I, I, first of all, I'd, I walked past her in the waiting room, didn't recognise her because she was well-groomed and, and smiling. And then she kind of almost ran up the corridor. Um, and we, we were just stunned. Like, you know, is this the same person? And she was so happy because... This is what we have seen. I mean, she was another very wonderful experience to see this dramatic improvement. But we do see dramatic improvements because hormones work fast. Hmm. They work much faster than antidepressants. So, you know, usually within a few days you get some improvement. But, I mean, she had the fibromyalgia diagnosis, which is often an estrogen deficiency that many women in the menopause will have the shoulder aches and pains, the hip aches and pains. And and people just kind of, oh, I'm getting old, you know, or I'm unfit or, you know, and, and it just becomes a grumbling ache that you have to put up with, whereas sometimes it is about the estrogen deficiency as well as the fact that, I remember, she said, oh, my goodness, I feel like I had 
a mini sort of calculator is my brain and now I've got a supercomputer as a brain because <laughs> all of a sudden her cognition and memory and all these synapses are firing again. Wow. So she was dramatic. She's dramatic. We don't get all dramatic like that but, I mean, you know, as a clinician, you walk around with a smile on your face <laughs> for yeah, quite bet, a while. I bet. Was psychiatry always the area of medicine that, that you wanted to specialise in? Jayshree, how early were you drawn to it? As a second-year medical student, we had a very dynamic lecturer in psychiatry and he was wonderful. It piqued my interest then, but I got very interested in emergency medicine. So I did a lot of emergency medicine, enrolled in the College of Emergency Medicine. And then after I did lots and lots of, uh, you know, treating car accident victims, heart attacks, and uh, I kept getting drawn to the psychiatric aspect. So, you know, spending time listening to the story of the person who'd taken the overdose rather than just dealing with the physical effect of whatever medication she'd taken. Just felt like I was always seeing just a bit of the person because you would just have to work out how you would get that person stable and then they would either be discharged back out to community or they would go upstairs to another division of medicine or surgery. So it constantly felt like I was on an assembly line just dealing with one bit, whereas I really appreciated and enjoyed speaking with the whole person and understanding a lot more about that person's life. And that's what then led me into psychiatry. Did you have any exposure to mental illness when you were growing up? Like, was it something you were aware of in your family or friends? No, nothing, not at all. Um, in fact, you know, I mean, I, I, I can't recall anybody in the family ever talking about anything like depression or anxiety or anything like that. I think it was probably the era as well. Maybe it's also the cultural aspects because Asian cultures don't talk as much about mental health issues as, as the West does. It's changing, but you know, that was the, that was the era. Mm. But, um, I think I had very resilient family, the whole family, because particularly with my parents who migrated and thrived in a new, very different country, um, they were resilient and very happy. Your family came, well, you came as, as a little girl with your parents and younger brother to, to Australia in 1961. Were there many other Indian families in no. Melbourne then? No, we were the second Indian family in the whole of Melbourne, the whole of Victoria, actually. So Extraordinary. Um, I know, it's weird when you think about it now, but we, we would have been sort of, you know, like the creatures in the zoo because <laughs> we looked so different. Were you friends with this other family? Well, I remember the uh, Naidu family, they lived in Ivanhoe and we lived in Aspendale. Well, so we lived in Parkdale, then Aspendale, so we were about... 30 kilometres apart in distance. So back in those days, of course, you wouldn't travel 30 kilometres to go to someone's place for dinner. And we saw them very infrequently. So, yeah, all of our friends and family friends, as well as, you know, the, us as kids, the friends we made were, were all local Aussies. I guess as a little kid, you just kind of adapt to whatever world you're in. But what was it like for your parents, do you think, being so cut off from their culture and, and their friends, their family? Honestly, I don't know how they did it. I, I try and put myself in their position and I think, my goodness, to come to a country that is very, very different without a backup of um, you know, other extended family, and extended family is really important in Indian culture, um, I don't know how they did it, but they they saw everything as exciting and um, they were quite adventurous in you know in that way and really enjoyed all sorts of aspects of uh, Australian life, but still maintained a lot of their Indian heritage. And then, of course, you know, would go back to India. We'd all go back as a family um, a lot as a child, which was also weird because none of my friends got on a plane <laughs> in Christmas holidays. They went to Rosebud in <laughs> caravans. So, you know, it was sort of everything I did was unusual, <laughs> but it was seen as exciting and exotic, unusual, rather than just plain weird. What kind of friendships did your mum make with other women in the suburbs? Oh, my mum was a very uh, sociable woman. She loved 
talking to people and listening to people. And so she made a lot of friends and uh, she she would teach the neighbours um, how to make proper Indian curries and things and they loved it. How tricky was it for her to source the ingredients for the Indian food that she was <laughs> wanting to, to teach her neighbours to make? Well, it was really tricky because, you know, there was no there were no spices. So this is the nineteen sixties. So the classic Australian cuisine was chops and three veg. And the veg was just boiled boiled green mush, boiled orange mush and mashed potatoes. So there was no spices like, you know, chili powder, cumin, coriander, none of those available. At most, there was Keen's curry powder, <laughs> which came in some weird orange plastic thing. I think it's still there. And mum would use that and then she would add in, I don't know, she she would make her own sort of, there was no tamarind, so she would make do with lemon. Look, she was, would she get she was family, a brilliant cook. Would she get family to send her yes. packages out? Yes. So there were food parcels coming from <laughs> India to Melbourne. <laughs> That was so exciting because they would come by sea mail and there would be all these amazing, you know, dried spices and there'd be, uh, you know, the uh, tamarind paste and all sorts of things, lentils. Yeah, and rice as well, basmati rice, because the sunlong short grain rice was just sticky. And uh, so my my mother would say, that's not rice. (laughs) This was a time still of the, the white Australia policy in terms mm. of, of immigration. What had brought your family to Australia in the first place? So my father was an atmospheric physicist and he did research in ozone. So remember all the research that talked about the diminishing ozone layers with the fluorocarbons in the atmosphere. He was the founder of a lot of that. So he had done his PhD in atmospheric physics, particularly in ozone in India. And the Australian government wanted to set up an atmospheric physics ozone research division as part of the CSIRO. And at that point, it was, you know, the height of the white Australia policy. My father's family back in India and my mother's family in India were appalled and they sort of went, no, you can't, you know, they're they're very racist there. They have this policy, the white Australia policy, leave the children here because they will be, you know, the brunt, they'll have to bear the brunt of horrors. So, you you know, you shouldn't take them at all. But my parents were very unwilling to separate the family. So we all came and they found that, in fact, they were very welcome by the CSIRO and he did great work. They'd come from such educated backgrounds, your mum and dad. What kind of conversations do you remember happening around the kitchen table at home when you were growing up? Oh, everything. It was politics, social world events. There was uh, science discussions about my father talking about O3, you know, the ozone molecule and all of that. My mother talking about uh, social anthropology. She was interested in all sorts of different things. There was conversations about what was going on in economics in in India and uh, Russia. I mean, all sorts of Mm. things. Dinner was a really important part. We would always have dinner together. We would all sit at the table and have dinner together. And there was discussions about, well, we took, you know, it was always a thing about what happened in your day. So they were always very keen. It was an interesting phenomenon. I think many migrant families, the children would probably have this. The children are made to feel much more important because the parents are learning from the children about this new culture. So, for example, I remember teaching, in inverted commas, my parents about jam on toast. And um, <laughs> This is our great so, gift to the world, is it, Jayshree? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, they, they, toast and jam is not an Indian thing. And so I had... I had this amazing thing at my my friend's place Um, and I went running home and I told my mum, I had, you know, they put this bread, they burnt the bread and then they put this butter on it and then there was the sweet stuff and so mum went to find out what it was all about and then so she bought the the bread and, um, you know, there was all excitement about how you're going to cook this and 
Yeah, so, yeah. so things like that. But it gives you as a child a very prominent position. You know, you're an important person and because your parents are learning from you. That's very empowering. What was it like then when you were back on their home turf, when you'd return with them to India? What was that experience like for you? Well, again, you see, the extended family made us feel like rock stars. You know, we, we, we were the exotic, you know, kids that were, um, well, we spoke with a funny accent, but, you know, they, they thought it was cute. And speaking in English, because, you know, the extended family all did speak wonderful English, but it's very learned English. So we would do things, I remember one time saying something like, oh, you know, could everybody get get uh, their hat or something? And it was like, what? No, no. Every person, please get his hat. You know, so it was proper, proper grammar. grammar. And and so they would laugh at, at us who were native English speakers at this point, but getting it wrong grammatically. And, and they would, you know, laugh and learn about the Australian way of life. And so we were very good storytellers. Everyone would sit and listen because it was about Ooh, tell us what what you know. What's a birthday party? Because at that point, birthday parties were big in our household. Because it wasn't something that happened traditionally in India. There's so many festivals in India that birthday parties are not big deal back then. And uh, so you know what what happens in a birthday party? And we would say, oh, well, there's this cake, and then people sing. And what the, what do you blow? Oh, you have candles. Why is it religion? No. <laughs> And what is this strange burnt bread that you have with the sweet stuff on top? <laughs> Tell us more. So you've, it sounds like your parents were really in both worlds, in the world yes. that they'd grown up yes. in and this new life they were making in Australia. Absolutely. What were their expectations of you when it came to your future marriage, Jayshree? Yes. What did they want? So for a while they were very convinced that I should marry a good Indian boy. And they had they had an arranged. There's marriage. only one other family. That's going to be tricky in Melbourne. <laughs> no, 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 there were many families okay. in India. See, see, they were going to do the whole horoscope and the matching and all of that back in India, and then that boy was going to come out to Australia. So that was the idea that they had because they were very um, happy together. And they'd had and, an, an arranged marriage. Yes. And yes. What, what? Why did it work for them, or how did it work for them? I think arranged marriages require both participants to have a somewhat clear stereotypical role in mind and the tasks and the roles uh, sort of set out. So they were very traditional in in some ways, but then in other ways they were very untraditional. But they were happy together and so I think... They sort of saw that, and they would t- they would talk. We talk about the fact that there was a high divorce rate in the West, and they were worried about about that. And so they thought that the path to happiness was to emulate them. And of course, I <laughs> forget that. You know, <laughs> there's no way I'm having an arranged marriage. What did but... you do when they tried to um, organise a meeting <laughs> with a prospective groom? <laughs> Professor so they Jay Shree. <laughs> they had this family friend who had a son and the son had come out, an Indian family, and they, they, the son had come out to visit them and so they thought this would be a great match. So I, um, I put on my worst outfit. I had tangled hair. I found some old glasses from somewhere and I just made myself look as hideous as possible and I deliberately didn't come down to greet the guest and I was just I was just appalling. Were they cranky and at you after that? My my brother kept giggling and, and just laughing during the whole time. He's three years younger than me. So he was just, you know, he thought this was hilarious. So afterwards his laughter sort of hit home with him going, this is ridiculous, you know, she's never going to be happy. And so then we all came to terms with the fact that this wasn't going to be a goer. And they also went back and talked at one of their holidays in India to the elders. And there was a, a, a big discussion with the extended family, my grandfather and, you know, all of the elder you know, uncles and so on. And it was really interesting because the elders went, well, of course she's not going to be marrying an Indian. You know, she's been brought up there since she was three it would be ridiculous to expect her to have an arranged marriage. So why are you being so silly, was my grandfather's comment to my parents. And, they and that was then fine. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, the voice of the elder is important. 
So who did you choose once you were given free reign? <laughs> I married the most Australian of all Australians, fourth generation man, uh, who was a medical student in my year, so not surprising, and uh, we've been married now for 42 years. It sounds like it worked out. It worked out. <laughs> it worked out. And you know what? It's really interesting because recently he's discovered that he has Indigenous heritage, which oh. we're very excited and proud of. So, yeah, couldn't get more Australian. <laughs> and did he manage to win over your slightly cautious parents and family back in India? Look, they were worried about, you know, when, when they met him, they said, did you have to pick such an Australian? Because, <laughs> you know, he sort of, boy from the country, came up, slapped my dad on the back and said, G'day! And, uh, you know, it was, was all very uh, friendly. But then they recognised the qualities and he's, he's, he's gorgeous. He's just a really straightforward, down-to-earth, no-nonsense, no-fuss, no-bother, um, very loving, very kind. Uh, he's a neurologist and a very intelligent man. So they loved him like their own son and uh, that relationship between... Both my parents and my husband has always been brilliant. And, of course, he was the super rock star when we went to India because he could play cricket. <laughs> We've talked in this conversation about, about the sort of things that make us who we are, in a sense, about hormones, about family, about, about culture, all these different factors. At this point in your life, how, how do you understand the ratio of, of what makes you <laughs> you? I think family is most important. I, I really, really think if you're blessed to have a warm, loving family, and it is, it is a bit of a lottery, I think you're really, really fortunate because that is your launch pad. It is also your comfort in times that are difficult and it's your go-to to laugh. And I mean family of origin as well as the families that you make. Um, and, yes, they can be all sorts of different gender mixes and whatever, but, you know, you're loved as a child, you know you're loved as a child, you're empowered as a child, that is an incredibly fortunate position to have. And then it enables you to go find somebody who loves you, who you love, and then if you have kids, you have that added incredible gift to be able to love somebody else and to help them in their journey through life. Thank you so much, Jayshree, for sharing some of your story and your extraordinary work. It's been a delight to meet you. Thank you. Thank you for the honour of um, asking me to be on this program. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.